all ninjas, calling all ninjas. It's time for Lime Ninja Radio. Join us every Thursday on iTunes for the latest episode of Lime Ninja Radio, except for last Thursday, which was Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. We took it off. We didn't tell you in advance. We're ter- telling you retrospectively, retroactively. There we go. That retro. Hello, I'm your host, McKay Rippey, and this is episode number 255 with the Mount Sinai Lime Mine Conference audio. We're going to be bringing you the best of the conference over the next few weeks. I really enjoyed being out there in the fall with the Lime Mine folks, and we want to bring you that audio from some absolutely fantastic speakers. So if you haven't heard this yet, you're really going to enjoy it. And this week, we're going to bring you Dr. Richard Horowitz and Dr. Kenneth Liegner. Also, welcome our show producer and the brains behind Lime Ninja Radio, Aurora. Hello. And in this episode, you're going to learn three main things. Uh, How disulfiram is being used to treat Lyme disease, why Dr. Richard Horowitz is combining dapsone and disulfiram, and how these treatments have led to long-term Lyme remission. Thanks, Aurora. And a big shout out to all you longtime Lyme ninjas. You're the reason we have more than half a million downloads. Aurora and I really appreciate you tuning in. And we'd like to welcome all the new listeners out there. Welcome to Lime Ninja Radio. You are now officially a Lime Ninja. And as you know, Lyme disease is an international problem. Each week we have listeners join you from all over the world. This past week we've had listeners tune in from New York, New York to Seattle, Washington. Thanks, Aurora. And while you're at it, why don't you tell us a little bit more about Dr. Richard Horowitz and Dr. Kenneth Liegner. Dr. Horowitz, the best-selling author of Why Can't I Get Better? Solving the Mystery of Lyme and Chronic Disease, has presented at numerous scientific conferences on Lyme disease and the role of co-infections and toxins in Lyme borreliosis. Dr. Liegner practices in Pauling, New York, and has been actively involved in diagnosis and treatment of Lyme disease and related disorders since 1988. His work has focused on the serious morbidity and occasional mortality that can come from chronic and neurological Lyme disease. Yes. Why did you decide to start out with Dr. Horowitz and Dr. Liegner? Well, it's the whole disulfiram thingy. I remember you coming home very excited about that. From the conference. Yes. Before I was a bit of a doubter. And now I'm an excited doubter. So (laughs) one now those of you who've been listening know that we really don't talk about antibiotics a lot on this show. And it's not that we're anti-antibiotics. It's just that it's the main form of treatment and there's lots of information out there. And also there seems to be a point where there's diminishing returns with antibiotics. So for some people where it starts Doing more harm the good, yeah. right? Just crushing your microbiome mostly. It can have other effects as well. Uh, in the case with some of the fluoroquinolones, but we're really just just kind of the normal. It just stops working. And how how much hammering do you want to do down there in your gut? You need those little critters in your microbiome. It's super important. But anyway, so there wasn't a whole lot new, interesting. You know, Doctor Horowitz was doing his work with Dapsone, but when I heard him talk about it and heard the results. It was interesting, but it wasn't. Inc- I wasn't encouraged by it. So the disulfiram was actually first mentioned 
at the first Lime Mind conference we went to, just one of the researchers says, oh, by the way, we did this kind of, uh, they have the computer modeling that they do with different interventions, different drugs to see if the proteins match up with the drugs. And he said, it's funny enough, this disulfiram came up. And it was funny because it's a drug that they use for alcoholics to make you essentially allergic to alcohol. What happens is it stops the uh, alcohol dehydrogenases, I believe that is, that break down alcohol in the body. So essentially, all you need is like to smell alcohol and you have the worst hangover you've ever had in your life because your body can't clear it out and it's just toxin and poisonous. But there is something strange about disulfiram. It seemed to match up with Borrelia. And so people began to experiment with it. And what we have now is clinical trials. It actually, unlike most new drugs, right? These guys started, these doctors started with disulfiram because it's already an approved drug. They could use it in the clinical setting and have seen what's happened with it. And now they're working backwards trying to figure out, okay, why is this working? And is it going to work for a lot of people? That said, th- this is a potentially a big breakthrough for the treatment of Lyme disease. There's something special about this drug, and it's not an antibiotic, so it's not going to wreck your microbiome. So this is worth taking a close look at, especially if you've been stuck. Now, on the other thing, we're never going to get to their interview, but <laughs> there's lots going no, on. No, no, we won't. <laughs> we will. I promise we're going to get to the interview. Down in Cornell, about an hour and a half from where we are, there is a group that's doing clinical trials for a new test for Borrelia. Now, I don't know all the details, like is it going to test all the different versions of Borrelia, but what it does is it's sensitive enough to test for proteins that the Borrelia sheds, even if it's buried inside your cartilage. So, really? Yes. Okay. So this is going to be able to test not only did you, it's going to bypass the whole antibody test, right? Not did you have a reaction to Borrelia, you know, a hundred years ago and you still have the antibodies in your body, right? Because that's the way the body works. This is going to test, is there Borrelia in your system right now? So if this test works out and now we've got the disulfiram, we're starting to put together the pieces of really effective treatment. We can tell, have we been successful with the new testing? Now, it doesn't address all the co-infections and all the complications that can come along with but that. But it's a start. It's a start, and it's an exciting start. So yeah. that's why we're leading with the audio from these two talks from Drs. Horowitz and Liegner to talk about disulfiram. So that's why we're really excited about it. So this really gets into the third step of treatment, which is go attack the bugs, right? There's a preparation phase, there's the go get the bug phase, and then there's a recovery phase. So this is really addresses strongly the let's go in there and kill Borrelia phase of things. All right. So without any more meowing from the cats in the house, here is Dr. Liegner's presentation from the Lyme Mind Conference. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, I want to thank the Stephen Alexandra Cohen Foundation, uh, the Icon Mount Sinai School of Medicine, and uh, Joel Dudley and the folks from the Institute for Next Generation Healthcare for having me here. Um, late, late October, uh, sorry, late, late of 2016, uh, one of my patients came to me, and he, he's a gentleman who um, 
had well-documented chronic and neurologic Lyme disease. He had been around the block a few times before he came to me. He had gotten a couple of courses of IV, and he would get better, and then he would relapse. And under my care, we designed a regimen that uh, pretty much kept him well with uh, what I call industrial strength amoxicillin, minocycline, and malarone, because he also had uh, babesiosis. And he's one of those patients that uh, many of you probably like him. They're always scanning the horizon for the next best kind of treatment. Um, and uh, he had been following the work of Kim Lewis for a while. He probably knew about Kim Lewis maybe uh, not quite as long as I had been aware of Kim's work. And uh, because of that, he probably ferreted out that uh, there was this YouTube video of Kim Lewis giving the keynote speaker address at the first annual Mount Sinai School of Medicine Lyme in the Ear of Precision Medicine back in October of 16. At the time, I wasn't even, for some reason, I wasn't even aware of that symposium, but he found this, uh, this video on YouTube, and uh, this, is a, this is a photograph of mine of, of Kim at the, one of the LDA conferences in Philadelphia, not the, not the Mount Sinai one, but uh, during that keynote speech, towards the end of the keynote speech, um, Kim um, mentioned that in the test tube, um, disulfiram was more or less, you know, sort of the best, most potent agent that had been identified, bar none. And he, he referenced uh, the foundational work of uh, Jayakumar Rajadas and Ravi Pothaneni, um, who published their study with high-throughput uh, testing in vitro uh, and, and identified disulfiram as very, very highly active. This is uh, Dr. Pothaneni. He was the lead author on that. And Dr. Rajadas, who's going to be speaking shortly. Um, and if, in case you're not familiar with it, this is the, this is the drug, uh, disulfiram, which has a very, very complex pharmacokinetics. And uh, so my patient saw this, uh, and, and he, he, he approached me, and he's a very respectful patient, very trustworthy, and he says to me, Hey, doc, can I try this stuff? So... First of all, um, I thought about it. Here's an FDA-approved drug. Um, it's got a long track record. It's been in use for 60, 70 years uh, for the treatment of alcoholism. And uh, at that point, you know how much I knew about disulfiram? Zero. Because I never had occasion to use it. So I did a little bit of research on it and uh, familiarized myself a little bit about it and kind of figured out what's the toxicities from it, what's the dosages. and. Uh, but be, before I agree to, uh, to, to let him use it, I, I want to ask, I want to pose this question, like, why would I grant his request? You know, why would I grant his request? And uh, I don't have time to go into this in detail. And that's the other thing. I've asked, uh, I've asked the folks from uh, LimeMind to post all of these slides because I'm not going to have time to go over them in detail. So this is going to be, uh, I, I should have said at the beginning, th this is my mission impossible which I've chosen to accept, which is to tell you all about disulfiram and the treatment of Lyme babesiosis in less than 15 minutes. But um, some of the things I say and a lot of the things I don't have time to say are on my slides, and I, I would um, refer you to look at those afterwards because I'm not going to be able to cover everything. Um, so why would I consider granting his request? So one of my famous patients, uh, Vicki Logan, um, was a patient who had, it's a long story, I don't have time to go into it, but she 
um, turned out that she was treated uh, in a way that was supposed to cure Lyme disease, and then it turns out uh, later on the Lyme organism was grown from her cerebrospinal fluid at the Centers for Disease Control in Fort Collins, Colorado. This is the um, this is the abstract that was submitted at the Fifth International Congress uh, on Lyme Borreliosis in uh, in Arlington, Virginia. And you'll notice that the co-authors include folks from CDC. And the conclusion was uh, culture of this cerebrospinal fluid specimen of BSK2, that's a culture media, yielded a strain of B. burgdorferi. Culture confirmed treatment failures have been previously reported for three Lyme neuroborreliosis cases in Europe. The present case apparently is the first of this type to be reported from the United States. So this made the front page of the Science Times and New York Times in, 19, in August of 1993. And this is me at, at Vicky's bedside in Northern Westchester Hospital Center. And this also uh, resulted in a guest commentary in the Journal of Clinical Microbiology. I love this quotation from Charcot of the Salpetriere. Disease is very old and nothing about it has changed. It is we who change as we learn to recognize what was formerly imperceptible. And this was from that paper. This is back in the early 90s. Chronic persisting infection not yielding to antibiotic treatment presents a dilemma for the patient, the physician, and for insurance companies that are contractually obliged, or should be, to pay for medically necessary treatment. The solution is not the denial of the reality of patient illness or imposition of arbitrary restrictions on allowable durations of treatment, but the design of more effective and less costly treatments that can keep patients well. Aside from the prevention of the illness in the first place, methods achieving sure cure for those already infected must be developed. Antibiotics may not be the answer. Rather, application of new techniques of molecular biology to interfere irreversibly with key metabolic or reproductive processes of the bacterium, wherever it may be found in the body, including intracellular sites, may provide more effective, effective and targeted therapy. So I was ready. I was ready for better treatments or, or other options. Um, the Logan case and several other cases were, were um, printed in uh, my article on chronic Lyme in the spectrum of, of uh, antibiotic responsive chronic meningoencephalomyelitides. And by the way, um, this article is now available online. If you go to the, the Desulfram article that is published under MDPI Antibiotics, there are supplementary links where you can access this article in depth. And it, it discusses the Logan case. Um, I don't have time to go into this, but she ended up developing a, a pleuropericarditis after she was out at the Mayo Clinic for implantation of a, uh, a baclofen pump, which didn't really work out. But while she was out there, the rheumatologist there, because she did have some markers of autoimmunity, decided that she might have lupus and put her on big slugs of steroids and then shipped her back to me. And she developed this, uh, this huge um, pleuropericardial effu effusion. So this is her mediastinum and it's mostly fluid, the heart is right in the center. And with that kind of condition, um, you often have to um, create a, a, what's called a pericardial window to let, allow the fluid to escape so the person doesn't develop tamponade. But anyway, I don't, this is her pericardium. And this is a, a touch prep of her pericardium by Paul Duray, uh, who was at the NIH. 
um, showing a, a beautiful Borrelia-compatible structure. This was after she had gotten even more antibiotics. So, in other words, proof that we're not curing the infection with our available antibiotics. I'm going to rush through this. This is another patient of mine who had a grapefruit-sized rash in his thigh. Um, his wife um, brought them to the doctor. The doctor didn't have any idea what it wrote. This was in the, in the mid-'80s. And then uh, he tested negative for Lyme disease, so uh, the wife kept selling to people, could he have Lyme? And they said, no, because he was seronegative. Um, it's a long, long story. It's all reported in that article, which I encourage you to, to see. He developed massive hydrocephalus, and he had a florid meningoencephalitis and cerebellitis. And his tissues um, were sent to, um, to Dagmar Hulinska at the Borrelia Reference Laboratory of the Czech Republic, who on electron microscopy um, identified structures that she felt were Borrelia, and also with primers from Ben Luft at Stony Brook, she, sorry, she was able to uh, detect the signal for uh, Bieberdorf. So what I'm getting at, these are my own patients studied in depth, proving persistent infection despite very intensive antibiotic therapy. So that's why I was, I was open, open to trying something different. Um, that just sort of repeats the same thing, that we need better methods of treatment. Okay, so let me get back to this patient. So, so anyway, I, I agreed to let this patient uh, be treated, and uh, whenever he had gone off antimicrobial agents, he deteriorated within a couple of weeks. I said, you know, if we're going to do this, I want you to stop all of your other medications, because otherwise I wouldn't know what disulfiram did or didn't do. I prescribed disulfiram for a minute. I, I kind of picked a number out of a hat just based on what the usual doses were for treating, uh, treating alcoholism. I sort of picked the upper end of the, the standard dose, which is 500 milligrams a day. And I said, I want you to, he lived at some distance. So I said, send me a note every couple of weeks. Let me know how you're doing. I want you to have labs every couple of weeks. And he did all of that. His labs were fine. And uh, then a couple of months later, he leaves a message on my office voicemail, canceling his follow-up appointment and declaring, I'm cured. And he, and he happened to mention in passing that he had required a hospitalization, but he didn't tell me why. So naturally, I'm curious, right? So I call him back up, and uh, he tells me that he's feeling well. He's off all of his medication. And I said, well, what did you need hospitalization for? And then he mentioned to me that he had required a psychiatric hospitalization. And, uh, and then I did a little bit more in-depth reading about disulfiram. It turns out disulfiram can affect neurotransmitters, and there have been some reports of, of neuropsychiatric illness, even frank psychosis related to the drug. So I called him back, and I discussed it with him, and I pointed it out to him, and he, and he says to me, eh, Doc, uh, I, I don't think it was the disulfiram, because he was under a lot of situational stress at the time. But then he says to me, but even if it was, it was worth it. And don't fail to offer that to other patients just because of that. He was like practically admonishing me over the telephone. Anyway, he's now 27 months out on nothing, more than 27 months feeling well, and we've been in touch with him on a regular basis. So, I mean, that just kind of knocked my socks off. I mean, I've been in this field for 30 years. We've never seen anything like this. After that experience, uh, I shared it with a couple of other patients and Again, I don't have time to go into it. If it's all outlined in, in excruciating detail in my article. But patient two, patient three, similar experience. And th these were very tough cases. And I said, after the third patient, you know, I said, I got to report this experience. So that led me to reporting this case. 
of these cases and, and this experience with disulfiram. So, um, so that's the article. It's open access. And again, there are supplementals so that you can link to other information. Um, okay, so I don't have time to go into all of this. There's going to be slides. Uh, let me just say that the, the optimal use, the optimal regimens for the use of this drug are not completely defined and remain to be defined. This agent, in my experience, is extremely potent. And although I started the first three patients just arbitrarily on, on a fairly hefty dose, which, by the way, I wouldn't recommend for most people, and nowadays we're starting at very, very tiny doses, uh, like 125 milligrams every third day only, and slowly ratcheting it up, and that way it's much more tolerable. And uh, what I've been finding, some of the patients that I started on this drug were very, very precarious uh, in their condition, and we started them on tiny doses, and, and finding that even 125 milligrams every fourth day, one of my patients is a 260-pound gentleman, very, was very, very ill, and these patients started making incredible progress. So I don't know whether that kind of low dose will enable you to achieve a, quote, enduring remission or not, but it's very therapeutic. Um, there's a lot of stuff that I'm going to have to skip over just because of time. I've only got a couple of minutes left, right? Um, so uh, this is, I don't want to call this a guideline, heaven forbid. It's just my protocol. There was a time when Khan's current therapy would describe the method of, of, of prominent physicians in their field, and that was quite fine before the year of guidelines. So let's just call it the method that I'm using, and it's subject to change, okay? And, and this is going to be available um, um, on the LimeMind site. Um, and there's some patients uh, who have needed to be retreated, and we're still figuring this out. It's, and another thing to say, we don't even really know at this point what the mechanisms are by which this drug has its effect. And it's a very complex drug and has a very complex pharmacokinetics. Um, I'm just going to skip to this. Uh, unfortunately, I have to confess, I, I do not know how to do Excel. So, Dawn, my... <laughs> Don, my office nurse, and I just put this little graph together. And uh, this, is, this is our, I, people want to know this, so I want to get this out. This is our summary of the first 30 patients uh, on disulfiram. And probably 85% of the patients endorsed deriving benefit from application of this treatment. Um, and then where you see those little E's in that column toward, toward the middle, those are the patients who are enjoying what I'm calling enduring remission, meaning they've been able to be off all treatment for at least six months, remaining well. Uh, a lot of the other patients I haven't followed long enough to know that they're going to be enjoying that enduring remission, but I also want to indicate that we've had some significant adverse re reactions to this drug. So this is, this is a tricky drug that really requires care, titration, and the patients really need to be followed carefully. Some of the patients have developed peripheral neuropathy which seems to be different than, you know, the, the Lyme neuropathy, although it's been pointed out, uh, it's sometimes difficult to distinguish um, peripheral neuropathy from Lyme. Anyway, and, and we've had a few patients who've had some emotional upset, nothing serious, but you have to really follow the patients carefully. And also, one, one important thing is to know when to quit with this agent. I just want to, there's a lot of unanswered questions. Um, also, what the, what's the mechanism? 
I just want to bring this up to you. Um, Vicki Logan uh, ended up um, passing away. Um, and if you want to know the details of that, it's, you can find that in my book or my 42-page letter to my then Congressman Chris Gibson, which explains what happened to her. But um, her tissues have been studied. And in fact, Eva Shapi just published with colleagues a detailed study of her tissues. And her tissues are rife with biofilm. Every cut of every tissue, brain, heart, liver, kidney, and not just small amounts of biofilm, large biofilm aggregates up to 300 microns laced with beryllia. If you know anything about biofilm, it has a structure, there's a metabolism, oxygen is going, going in and carbon dioxide is going out. One of my speculations about one of the reasons why disulfiram might be um, more effective than our standard antibiotics, one of the breakdown products of disulfiram is carbon disulfide. So just to remember the periodic tables, guys, remember that? Sulfur is directly below oxygen. So what I'm getting at is carbon dioxide is a small molecule, very diffusible. Carbon disulfide is a very small molecule, very diffusible. It's known that carbon disulfide has antibacterial properties. So my pet theory, but I really don't know, and it really deserves for the study, is one of the reasons that disulfur may be effective is that that this breakdown product, carbon disulfide, may be able to diffuse widely, including in uh, biofilm. Anyway, thank you all for your attention. I think I'm, is my time up? Thank you so much. He mentions his slides a lot in this talk. Yes, there is that. So what we're going to do is have a link and the show notes to the video, and then you can see the slides in the video. So just head on over to LimeNinjaRadio.com. Look for this episode number 255, Dr. Liegner and Dr. Horowitz, and just click on that. And then you'll see, scroll down a little bit, and you'll see the links to take you to the YouTube video if you want to see the slides. I we thought that there's enough information on the audio that you really didn't need them, but they can be helpful. So if you want to do that, go. that's how you can get to the slides. You know, it's really cool that Dr. Liegner, as a clinician, is so excited by that that disulfiram. You don't often see clinicians get that excited by uh, a modality. It was. And actually, that's one of the things that kind of convinced me over. You read information about it on the web and people's reports. But when you're in person and you can see the doctor's excitement and feel it and hear it, it does make a difference. These guys have been treating Lyme disease. These guys, these men, these physicians have been treating Lyme disease for a long time. So when they get excited about something, it's worth paying some attention to without a doubt. All right. That was Dr. Liegner. And now let's hear how Dr. Horowitz is using disulfiram. So uh, just as Dr. Liegner had told you some of the good news about these persister drugs and biofilms, I'm going to give you also some very good news today. Um, I'm going to show you, I did something backwards. Most researchers first go into uh, thousands of drug molecules to find what works, look at it in culture, and then do clinical studies. I did exactly the opposite. I'm going to show you 300 patients that we published on dapsone combination therapy. Uh, dapsone is a persister drug used normally for mycobacterium infections. 
And I came up with this idea based on my work at Mount Sinai actually over 30 years ago in the HIV population who had uh, MAI, Mycobacterium avium intracellulari. Um, these drugs basically are very interesting to use, and I'm going to show you what combination therapy does in culture, which is helping to confirm some of the work we've already published. Uh, and this work you'll see is thanks to Eva Shapi and the work that we did at the University of New Haven together. I have a couple of conflicts of interest, and the first most important one would be that the views expressed in this presentation definitely do not reflect the views of the Tick-Borne Disease Working Group, HHS, or the United States. Um, that I can tell you certainly is true. So we know for early Lyme disease, standard treatments are usually short courses of amoxicillin, doxycycline, cefuroxymaxotil, ceftin. They work in 70 to 75% of the cases, um, except we also know that there's symptomatic relapse. And several studies have suggested that the reason that these people go on and have relapses are due to these round body forms, sometimes called uh, cyst forms, L forms, cell wall deficient forms, persister cells, and biofilm forms. And as just as Ken was telling you, for the last 25 years or so, we were using drugs that were not addressing biofilms and persisters. And I can tell you that my experience in the last five to six years has been they have really been a game changer for most of us. So I'm going to show you some of the clinical studies that we reported on the successful use of an intracellular mycobacterium drug, uh, Dapsone. It's usually used for treating leprosy. They also use it for a whole host of other diseases. It's also been out for 50, 60 years like disulfiram. Uh, but the difference is, is that we used it in combination therapy with doxycycline, rifampin, and dapsone, as well as plaquenil, which is known to alkalize the intracellular compartment, hit the round body forms, and we used three biofilm agents with stevia, biocidin, uh, and oregano oil in the studies that I'm going to show you. So the first study that we published in 2016 with Dr. Phyllis Freeman, are mycobacterium drugs effective for treatment-resistant Lyme, tick-borne co-infections, and autoimmune disease? And this was a woman with Bisset syndrome, a very unusual autoimmune disease. She had very big ulcers on her tongue in different parts of her body. She had failed 20 years of drugs with a rheumatologist. She had osteoporosis from all the steroids they put her on. And at one point, we discovered she had Lyme. Dapsone is used for Bisset's. But she wasn't getting better. And she had these nodules, these granulomas on her hands that were called Winkelmann's granulomas. It turns out it was Bartonella. And when we gave pyrazinamide, which is a tuberculosis drug used for treating TB and to shorten the course, lo and behold, the Bartonella lesions went away. And with Dapsone, the patient got better for the first time in 20 years. We then went on in 2016 and published 100 patients on Dapsone combination therapy. And we showed that for eight major Lyme symptoms, it was statistically significant that all of the symptoms of fatigue and pain and neuropathy and memory concentration problems, babesia symptoms, sweats, chills, they all got better. The only thing that didn't get better in the first study of 100 patients was headaches. But then we published a second study, and this was published early this year, Precision Medicine Retrospective Chart Review and Data Analysis of 200 Patients on Dapsone Combination Therapy. This was part one of a part two study. And you can see from figure one that all of the symptoms, again, statistically got better. Fatigue, muscle, joint pain, in this case, headaches did get better. Neuropathy, uh, memory problems, sweat. So again, it hit Babesia similar to disulfiram. And when we looked at paired sample t-tests for these 200 patients, we found that the p-values were very strong. They were less than 0.001. So dapsone combination therapy was definitely working in clinical practice, but we had not done the prior studies in culture to see if we could confirm that it actually was killing Borrelia. 
We also looked in the second part of the study in precision medicine, the role of the MSIDS model. Now, having seen over 13,000 patients, I can tell you that all the research we're doing on Lyme is great, but as I'll show you, a lot of the problems we're finding that are keeping people sick are not just Lyme. We're looking at Babesia, which is chronic, Bartonella, which is chronic, Mycoplasma, which is chronic, immune deficiencies, sleep disorders, leaky gut, microbiome deficiencies, mitochondrial dysfunction, POTS dysautonomia. There's up to 16 reasons we found why people stay ill. And what's important, the most important parts of this study is that the chronic Babesiosis and Bartonella definitely are playing a role in keeping these people ill. But we also found immune dysfunction, that Borrelia was affecting the B cells of the body. Over 20% of these people had immunoglobulin deficiencies with low IgG and uh, over 70% with subclass deficiencies in subclass one and three, which you need to phagocytize and kill the bacteria. But we found a lot of inflammation. We found mold toxins. We found heavy metals like mercury and lead. Uh, we found food and environmental allergies. The point being that if you have inflammation in the body, inflammation of TNF-alpha, interleukin-1, IL-6, interferon gamma, whether that's coming from Lyme or Babesia or Bartonella or leaky gut or not falling asleep, you're going to get the same symptoms in Lyme. So when we looked in this phase two study, the part two, at the MSIDS variables, you can see that about 70% across the board, people had multiple overlapping sources of inflammation and downstream effects, especially dysautonomia with POTS, which was in about 40% of the people. And probably half of the women in wheelchairs who've come to me over the years, uh, we got them out of wheelchairs walking, not by treating the Lyme, but by actually treating their autonomic nervous system and raising their blood pressure. When we looked at the co-infection status, though, of these 200 patients on dapsone combination therapy, you can see on the left-hand side that Babesia and Bartonella were playing a very significant role, as well as a lot of mycoplasma and chlamydia and pneumonia uh, and viruses that showed up. So what came out of this study is that, just as Dr. Liebner had showed you about persistence, 14.5% of our patients were PCR positive in the study despite months and years of supposedly adequate antibiotic therapy. This is prior to dapsone combination therapy. We had ongoing babesiosis that was positive by PCR in fish. This is despite using classical therapies of mepron, azithromax, or clindamycin and quinine. Bartonella hensley was positive by PCR in fish. This is despite using multiple intracellular drugs. Tularemia titers would increase fourfold um, one of these patients went to an infectious disease doctor who confirmed it was active tularemia. We found active brucellosis with positive agglutination. And we even found mycoplasma species like mycoplasma fermentans and penetrans, which are all, again, intracellular infections inside the cells with viruses like herpes virus 6, which reactivated with the immune suppression, both by fourfold increases in titers and PCR positive. So what is the common denominator of why all of these people were sick? They didn't just have Lyme as an intracellular infection. They had multiple intracellular infections like Borrelia, Bartonella, Mycoplasma, Chlamydia, Tularemia, Brucella, Ehrlichia, Anaplasma, Rickettsial infection. These are all intracellular infections. And we know that intracellular infections may be resistant to therapy. They're located in biofilms and they can persist despite standard therapy. But again, you've got to keep in mind that the inflammation could also be coming from lack of sleep and toxins and nutritional deficiencies. This same year, uh, Dr. Feng and Dr. Yang from Hopkins published on stationary phase persister biofilm microcolonies causing more severe disease. And I would absolutely agree in the human model from what we've been seeing in our patients. When you give dapsone or disulfiram to these patients, 
you definitely see Herxheimer's like you've not seen before using other medications. So we know from the biology of Borrelia that we may need to use a comprehensive treatment which affects the log phase actively growing forms. And that's what Dr. Liegner showed you with cephalosporins or penicillins. This goes back years. Or round body cystic forms. That's where we use Plaquenil and grapefruit seed extract. And I was the first doctor about 20 years ago to discover flagell uh, work for Lyme and Dr. Borson then confirmed it. But then we've got the intracellular drugs like tetracyclines, macrolides like azithromycin, rifampin, um, and quinolones, and then the drugs that are affecting these stationary phase persisters in biofilm forms like dapsone, pyrazinamide, daptomycin, and disulfiram. And keep in mind in the studies I'm about to show you, we did use several biofilm agents, but in the culture studies I'm about to show you, we did not. So we went ahead, and this is a study we did with Eva about two and a half years ago. It was a poster presentation. You can see at the bottom where it shows dapsone doxyrifampin. Um, these are the biofilm forms that were in culture, and you can see that after just 72 hours with doxyrifampin and dapsone, the biofilm forms were quite small. In fact, were much su it was superior than other treatments we used. But we really wanted to look in culture and find out what was the effect of dapsone alone and then starting to combine these antibiotics one after another to see how it affected the resistant morphological forms of Borrelia burgdorferi. So again, this was done by Eva Shapi's group uh, with Dr. Freeman and myself at the University of New Haven. So we evaluated in the study the effectiveness of dapsone individually and in combination with cefuroxime, but also intracellular antibiotics like doxycycline, rifampin, azithromycin, and we looked at the log phase, actively growing spirochetes, we looked at persister cells, and we looked at biofilm forms. We used low-passage isolates of B. burgdorferi, the B31 strain. They were cultured in BSK media, supplemented in 6% rabbit serum. The stock cultures were maintained in sterile glass tubes and incubated at 33 degrees. And by the way, this is standard things that John Hopkins and other researchers have used in the materials and methods. And the spirochetes in logarithmic phase, when they were actively growing, were seeded on 96 well sterile tissue culture plates, incubated for 48 hours prior to giving them antimicrobial treatment. And the stationary phase cultures were seeded also in 96 well tissue culture plates for five days prior to treatment. For the biofilms, these are in four-well Permanox chamber slides or in 48-well sterile tissue cultures. These were in five days to establish attached biofilm forms. And the floating spiroketal cells and aggregates from the supernatant were removed to ensure only surface-attached biofilms would be analyzed. We looked at doxycycline alone, all of these alone and in combination. Rifampin at 50 micromoles because that was the dosage that had the best effect in culture. Cefuroxine, Zithromax, Dapsone, Sulfamethoxazole, Sulfochloropyridazine, Trimethoprim. All of these were prepared in standard one-time phosphate buffered solutions and sterilized using uh, micropore filters. And we used pyrazinamide as a persister drug. The testing was done individually on Borrelia burgdorferi and also found effective in reducing the morphological forms. Um, they then were tested in combination. Our control was doxycycline at 10 and 50 micromoles, and as a negative control, we used PBS, which was the diluent for the antimicrobial compounds. So when we looked at how did dapsone work alone and in combination, we used some of the similar studies done at John Hopkins and in other researchers. We looked at cyber green assays for cell growth and viability. We looked at recovery culture analysis. We looked at biofilm analysis by crystal violet assay. We looked at dimethylmethylene blue glycosaminoglycan, or GAG assays, and live dead fluorescent microscopy, which is used by backlight. 
So here's table one, and you can see the effects of individual and combination antibiotics. Now the log phase, so these are your active growing Borrelia, and you can see that doxycycline was 18% survival. It worked quite well. That's why doxy works when people get EM rashes. But you'll notice the closest to actively growing uh, Borrelia in the log phase was down below, was doxyrifampin and dapsone. That was at 19%. And I'll go back to why I think this is important early on when people get EM rashes. When we looked, however, at the stationary phase survival, um, and this is again when we're looking at all these drugs separately, 54% for Dapsone, it was the most highly effective drug for these stationary phase uh, persisters, and Dapsone doxyrifampin uh, was a little bit better at 51%. Table two, you can see the effect of different antibiotic treatments on the biofilm mass using crystal violet. You'll notice again that Dapsone alone was 58%. It was the most highly effective of the drugs we used as a single drug. If you move on and you look to the right, you'll see that these are antibiotics in double combination. The most effective one was doxycycline and Dapsone at 65%. We then looked at triple combinations, in fact, the ones we used that we published in these 300 patients on Dapsone, and you'll notice the most effective one in culture, uh, especially looking at biofilm assays, was Dapsy, uh, Dapsone, doxycycline, and rifampin at 52%. And then we tried adding on azithromycin as a fourth intracellular drug. It still worked, but not quite as effective as the triple combination. It was at 58%. Table three, we looked at these different antibiotic treatments on the biofilms using gag content um, with the dimethylene uh, blue assay. And again, you can see Dapsone was the most effective for reducing the gag content in the biofilms. But again, when we combined Dapsone with doxycycline rifampin, and in this case azithromycin, a fourth intracellular drug, that was the most effective at lowering gag inside the biofilms, uh, looking at this from the point of view of biofilm gag studies. Figure one shows you live dead microscopic images. Uh, this is at 72 hours. You can see that again at the lower part of the slides, the Dapsone doxyrifampin looks like it's uh, working quite well. But you can see this a little bit better in the live dead staining image. This is a 14 day recovery culture uh, following treatment with these different agents. And you can see there's percentages next to all of these different combinations. You'll notice at the bottom that doxyrifampin and Dapsone was 41%. It was one of the most highly effective combinations. The only one that was better in this particular case was adding Zithromax. It was a 3% improvement going from 41% to 38%. When we looked at the biofilm cultures, again, you can see that Dapsone, Doxycycline, and Rifampin was again knocking out these biofilm cultures. So the results basically help confirm what we've been seeing in clinical practice for these 300 patients we published in the last five years. The persister drug Dapsone alone are in various combinations, and the ones that worked the best was doxycycline and Dapsone, doxycycline rifampin and Dapsone, and doxycycline rifampin and azithromycin with Dapsone. Those are, the, those are the combinations that had the most significant effect on all morphological forms of Bieber-Dorfry and even reduced the protective glycosaminoglycan layer of Bieber-Dorfry biofilm. So the conclusion. Our in vitro findings suggest that the antimicrobial agents like Dapsone, persister drugs in combination with other intracellular antibiotics are effective against the resistant morphological forms of Bieber-Dorfry and culture, and it supports previously published findings on the clinical efficacy of Dapsone combination therapy. The major finding was Dapsone as a single drug and in combination with Doxy and Doxyrifampin, as well as Doxyrifampin and Zithromax, 
had the most significant effect in reducing the stationary face cells and the surface-bound biofilm aggregates of Bieber-Dorfrei among all the different antibiotics that we normally use uh, in our clinical practice. Furthermore, Dapsone alone and in combination was effective in reducing the mucopolysaccharide layer of the biofilms. And these findings might explain, at least in part, the clinical efficacy that we have been publishing on these 300 individuals in our recent Dapsone combination trials. So we know that a lot of Lyme patients have significant cognitive deficits. In the studies that we published in the Precision Medicine study published this year in 2019, the Dapsone combination group got better with fatigue, pain, neuropathy, headaches, and cognitive defects. But the success of Dapsone was its good CNS penetration. It has antibacterial effects by stopping RNA and protein production. It works against a broad range of pathogens. So again, you saw Bartonella, Mycoplasma. We need combination therapy against all of these different co-infections. It's efficacy against the different forms of Borrelia, round body, stationary phase, and biofilm. And the advantage is Dapsone also has an anti-inflammatory effect by converting myeloperoxidase into its inactive product. So the conclusion is the drug combination published in our previous study suggests that Dapsone and Doxy, Dapsone-Doxyrifampin and Dapsone-Doxyrifampin and azithromycin are the most effective in reducing all morphological forms of Borrelia. And here's the remaining questions. So I had a patient in my practice accidentally take a double dose of Dapsone. I think most of you know this uh, story by now. We put 110 people on this, including my wife, who's here in the audience, and Olivia, who's here. And we now have people, just as Dr. Liebner was telling you, my wife is now two years out. She suffered with Lyme for over 30 years. She had almost every point on the MSIDS model that was active. She has no more symptoms for two years. Olivia is now about a year and a half out. I just saw a patient in my practice last week who was sick for about 15 years. He has no symptoms since doing the high-dose Dapsone. So it is working, but who is it working for? Well, we did an analysis of these 110 patients, and 70 out of 110 are staying in remission. But the 40 that are not staying in remission, every one of them had active Babesia and active Bartonella by PCR or FISH. Now, we have, at this point, 150 people on disulfiram. Some on disulfiram alone, some on doxyrifampin disulfiram, so I could compare it to what I just showed you with Dapsone, and some on doxyrifampin Dapsone and disulfiram to lower the disulfiram dose to keep down side effects and maybe not have to use double-dose Dapsone. I can tell you now that some of the Bartonella patients that have had difficulty treating for the last 10 years, some of them on doxyrifampin and azithromycin with disulfiram are having miraculous results. We are definitely seeing the fact that the biofilms with hitting Lyme and hitting the co-infections, it's working, but these patients are just coming off disulfiram at this point, so I don't know whether they're going to stay in long-term remission, but the good news for the Lyme community is you can have hope. The persister drug regimens and the biofilms Thanks to all of the researchers from John Hopkins and Stanford and Eva Shopi's group, and everyone has worked on this, has helped uh, clinicians like myself and Dr. Liebner finally figure out how to help the Lyme community. So thank you so much to Bay Area Lyme, to the MSIDS Research Foundation for all of your assistance. You know, we talked about Dr. Liebner getting excited, but... I was excited when Dr. Horowitz was talking about being able to effectively treat these persister forms of Lyme disease. That, that got me excited. Right. It doesn't seem to matter what form Lyme is taking at the time Dusulfiram gets absorbed by Lyme. And that's, that's amazing. It's just amazing. So let's, let's hope this pans out to be 
as much as we hope it'll be, and that the side effects don't really become much of a, an issue. That if you can avoid alcohol and avoid some of those side effects, that that you won't have some of those strange reactions that that we heard reported there. So it's it's a bit of a, a challenge, perhaps, but maybe one worth taking a look at. Oh, and by the way, this section today is all about the middle phase, phase two of our Lyme journey. The reboot phase, obviously, is first phase, and this is the resolve phase to really, and maybe this is the breakthrough we've been waiting for, to really go after the Borrelia specifically, wherever it is in the body, because it seems like Borrelia is really hungry for this disulfiram and thinks it's some sort of treat. And just sucks it up like you would good pumpkin pie after Thanksgiving. <laughs> anyway, if you take, I'd like to take a look at our roadmap in a graphical form. Go ahead over to LimeNinjaRadio.com. Click on the extras. It's free. And it gives you an idea about where you are in your journey, what you need to be thinking about. And also a reminder, always have a plan B. So if disulfiram is going to be your plan A and you got all your eggs in one basket, then be thinking about plan B, you know, whether it's going to be a herbal protocol or another antibiotic protocol. Don't put all your emotional eggs in one basket ever, even something exciting like this, like disulfiram. If you have any feedback, suggestions, suggestions yes, yes, really anything, just send an f- email to feedback at limeninjaradio.com. We're getting quite a bit of suggestions for guests. Keep them coming. Since you've been here to the end, we'll tell you a little bit. We're going to go through the audio from the Lime Mind Conference, and then we'll have a couple more interviews that we have lined up. I'll be doing over the next week or so. We'll be rolling those out. So that's going to take us into the new year and maybe even to early spring. And then we're going to be moving this podcast over into talking more about the genetics of Lyme disease and of health and the nutrition and nutritional genomics. And that's really become an interest of mine, particularly the nitric oxide side of things, which was on last episode, right? Yeah. yeah. Two weeks ago, when the last episode came out, really talked about peroxynitrite and the horrible things that can go wrong with just the inflammatory cascade that once it gets rolling, can't shut down. So we're going to start to focus on that a little bit more. And, you know, we have plenty of back episodes that we may organize in a way where you can go back and look on specific things, but we're moving more to the nutritional side of things. There are other podcasts coming out about Lyme disease. There's a lot more information out there. So we're going to, instead of being a general podcast, begin to focus on an area that that I'm interested in and I think can be really helpful, particularly on the recovery phase of Lyme disease, maybe some on the preparation side of things, but it's when you're stuck, the people are really stuck and just can't get a foothold uh, to begin to dig deep. And, you know, is there a genetic issue going on that can't be addressed here? So that's, that's what we're going to be doing. Preview for 2020. Yes. So if you like what we're doing here at Lime Ninja Radio, hit the subscribe button. That way you won't miss an episode. And if you really like what we're doing, share this podcast with a friend. But if you really, really like what we're doing, scroll down to the bottom of your podcast app and leave us a review. It helps us reach more people just like you. And Aurora, we had amazing two reviews in November. And my goal is to get two every month. So if you haven't yet left us a review and you have a moment or you can make a moment, go ahead and do that right now. 
you can pause this and we'll still be here when you come back. Go ahead, leave us a review. It's super helpful to help us climb up the rankings in iTunes. And it just, it helps us so much. And also it helps Aurora and I stay motivated to keep doing this. We've been doing this five years, almost every week, week after week, 255 times we've done this. It's awesome. We love it. And especially when we get reviews like this one. So we're going to go ahead and read what one of the reviews we got last month. Yes. So this says, my wife started showing symptoms of Lyme and other parasites and co-infections shortly after going a very tough period in her life. She changed her career paths, got a divorce, had a hysterectomy, and suffered the loss of her grandmother that she was very close to, all within a matter of two months. After she got sick, we tried the traditional Western medicine route only to get no answers. Thankfully, we went to an alternative medicine practitioner and found out she had Lyme disease, as well as other co-infections. However, the treatment she received seemed to not be helping and even making her symptoms worse, so we stopped the treatment as it was expensive and seemingly ineffective. Then we were left wondering what next and where do we go. Eventually, I got fed up with my wife being constantly sick and tired and just miserable, and I decided to do some research but didn't know where to start. Money is extremely tight at the moment, and I'm unable to pay for a treatment plan from an expert. I finally decided to see if there were any podcasts with any sort of discussion or information on Lyme so I could formulate a Lyme treatment protocol as cheaply as I could on my own without sacrificing the effectiveness, and I found Lyme Ninja. This podcast has opened my eyes as to why she felt worse on treatment, Herks, and has opened so many new avenues to go down. I finally feel like I'm on the right path to curing or at least managing my wife's Lyme disease and other co-infections. I just might stand a chance to get my wife better on my current budget. It's a must if you or a loved one is struggling with Lyme. Thank you for this service. And thank you. It's awesome. Reviews like that obviously go a long way in bolstering our spirit. (laughs) So thank you, especially this time of year when things can be so rough, when things are going well. Thanks for leaving that review. And again, if you have a few minutes, please leave us one. We'd love to hear from you. And last, as you longtime Lime Ninjas know, this podcast would not be complete unless we left you with the Lime Ninja fact of the day. Did you know? A ninja once put her phone on airplane mode and then flew from Chicago to L.A. Lime Ninja Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized medical advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's medical situation is unique, and Lime Ninja Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized medical advice. Lime Ninja Radio is not licensed to render medical advice and should be considered simply the public opinion of Lime Ninja Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific treatment options are not intended to address any listener's particular medical situation. As always, contact your physician before considering any new treatment.